Hello, and welcome to History Reconsidered, a podcast dedicated to taking a deep dive into historical issues and events and relating them to the modern world. I'm your host, Jarrett Stepman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Samantra Mitra. On this week's episode, we'll be talking about the effects of the Civil War. We'll be talking about the war itself, the technological changes, the strategies of the North and South, and of course, the impact on the war of the war on Americans, both from the North and the South. And Sumatra, I think this is a good follow-up to the previous episode because so much is talked about in the kind of uh, struggles, of course, between the idea of slavery, about the Constitution, about the all these issues. But much of that goes away during the course of the actual fighting, the actual soldiers doing the, 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 the battles on the ground, the, the massive battles that in American history have been entirely unheard of, where you have uh, the number of casualties uh, taking place in a single day uh, in the Civil War, uh, in many ways dwarfing what Americans had seen in the American Revolution and previous wars. And I think it's a good idea to to talk about that and talk about you know the, these two sides and how they were looking to uh, ultimately win uh, in this, this struggle between North and South. You're right. I think uh, the most interesting thing that we discussed, even in the last episode, was um, that this was the first modernized war in human history. People always talk about the First World War, and that's, and that's valid because it was bigger in scale. Um, at that point of time, technology has obviously increased to the point where the Europeans had no idea what they were facing. They had like strategies like hill conquering and stuff and they had no idea what kind of you know mechanized weaponry they, they're going to face on the other side tanks or something of that sort but one needs to remember that 50 years before the first world war the american civil war was the precursor of what kind of what changes in technology and tactics would happen if you have modernized warfare on a grand scale this is not a skirmish this is not uh, a mechanized infantry division mechanized in those days meant like you know followed by cavalry uh going and fighting with the indians you know in in some of the western parts of the of the country this is proper men massed on both sides having the tactics of last century but facing weapons which the world has not seen before and uh, and the and the sheer scale of the number of people, uh, the the casualty of the number of people are almost six hundred and twenty thousand. Obviously, we have you know discussions about that in the in the in the later part of the episode. But the gospel you know number is like around six hundred and twenty thousand people dead, almost a half a, one and a half million of casualties. Um, and that the, the the scale of that the the range of casualties is unthinkable, and the world hasn't seen that before. You know, so it it. It, it, it's it's something that people often forget. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why we thought of dividing the Civil War into themes rather than going for a chronological timeline. I think that's one of the reasons is because technology and technological warfare is such an important part of it. Yeah, it, it really is amazing that the 620,000 dead, I mean, for scale, I mean, that's if you combine the, the American Revolution, the War of 1812, the Mexican-American War, the Spanish-American War, World War I, World War II, and the Korean War, and you put all those deaths together, uh, would have equaled uh, the same as the Civil War. It was unreal, uh, the, the, the amount of casualties, and for a country that uh, was free from a lot of the, the large-scale conflicts that had happened in Europe, but um, the casualty rates for both sides were, were absolutely astounding. Uh, the, the death rates, I think it's been estimated, there's something about six times the death rate of World War II for the, for the soldiers 
uh, who participated. And especially for if, if one fought for the Confederacy, where they had about three times the, the casualty rates uh, of those of the unionists. So I, I, it's, it's absolutely remarkable. In fact, I think I saw one stat that about that one in five Southern men didn't survive the war, which is an astounding number. You know, when you especially when you consider the high rates of participation by, by Southern men and and and. Uh, in the war, that's an absolutely astounding number. And you can understand why this had such a profound effect on American society, why the, the, the death and the loss in the war was what hung over everyone's mind, both during the conflict and following it. I mean, there really was a generation of young men uh, that was shaped and, and ultimately lost uh, in this conflict. And uh, the country really had to struggle to 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 come to grips with this in the years that follow this is something i think that especially in modern debates about the civil war and it is very oftentimes ideological you know we you know we we look at you know one side is the villains the other side are, are the good guys and while many of those issues are very important i think what's what's right is right and what's wrong is wrong uh, sometimes we lose the the human aspect of these conflicts these weren't just uh, these weren't just numbers. These were these were families. These were towns. And sometimes you had uh, entire towns that would lose their young men. I mean, it was very common during the Civil War, especially uh, in the way that many units uh, were mustered. Uh, they oftentimes put men who were in the same town, in the same unit together. Uh, this is something that Shelby Foote has, has, has written about and spoken about. They get in a tough spot during a battle and they lose all the young men from that part of town. Every single one of them is killed because they got in a tough spot in a major battle. And you can imagine the consequences of that and the feeling of, you know, every single family in America had somebody who had died or had been severely affected by the war. This was not just a, some, some conflict in a far off battlefield in a place you don't know. This is something taking place right in your backyard uh, with uh, between, between brothers and, and between, and with your, your family members directly there going to the battlefield. So this was quite a shocking thing for Americans at the time. And, probably, I would say, a unique conflict in our country's history. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, uh, one of the things which always um, astounded me about the, the the ratio of death in on both sides is, you know, we, we, we ended the last episode with the firing on Fort Sumter. Um, initially, the mobilization wasn't a thorough mobilization on all sides. I mean, Lincoln thought that he's just going to have like a kind of like a policing effort where he just go and arrest some of the people. And most of the people in the South would um, <clears throat> would rise up essentially in favor of Lincoln because he, he didn't he didn't expect that um, the war is going to be a, a long war. But overall, uh, in, in the final days when the mobilization was happening in a full scale, the North had almost a three to one advantage in manpower over the South. And, and that's just pure aggregate manpower within that manpower. The South had uh, a significant amount of percentage of slaves who were, you know, always at the risk of, of going to join the other side or some kind of, you know, uh, a conflict that's happening from within. So, and in, and when you know that, and then you realize the scale of death on each side, it's kind of like, I mean, I mentioned in the last episode about the Ukraine-Russia conflict, because that's just so similar on one hand, like even when you have exactly the equal number of death on both sides, the ratio is so much high for the South or for Ukraine in this case. So again, the gospel number is like 360,000 or something of that sort for the North and 258, 260,000 for the South. 
But when you consider that the North had almost 20 million people uh, in the war effort uh, compared to the South's seven, but actually five, you know, altogether, the, the, you, you rightly mentioned like the, there are some places where the entire families were wiped out, all the brothers dead in one single skirmish. You know, they were all part of the same battalion who went in one, you know, uh, action and then just died. Like there was this one uh, action I remember reading in that book about Chancellorville, like which is Robert Ely's like biggest, you know, greatest battle win, where there was this entire brigade of the Southern, you know, army and the regiment. They went through the back, through the hill, uh, through the jungles, and then they had to come back because they didn't know who they were shooting at. And the amount of casualties in that in in that brigade was just astounding. It was phenomenal. I think that's something which people forget, and that's part of the reason why there was this effort at reconciliation, either because people really understood the amount of people died on all sides. I mean, that memory is obviously fading now, and people kind of like talk about oh, a new civil war, but they don't really understand what the amount of scale and the casualty and the tragedy uh, of it all. You know how it was. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, to to I guess to further further into perspective, especially the numbers, uh, six hundred twenty thousand. Which according that's only to, according to the kind of age old estimate. There have been actually been more recent analyses uh, looking at census data saying that the actual number of deaths was something more like seven hundred fifty thousand or maybe even eight hundred fifty thousand, which is quite quite staggering when you consider that the number of people in the country was a, roughly about the same as modern day Texas. Like that was how many people, around 30 million people uh, is oftentimes given as the number of, of Americans at that time and around where Texas is today. So that's a, that's a huge uh, casualty and, and death rate. Uh, and, and not to mention, I mean, we, you know, you could talk about the, the deaths that, that occurred during the war, uh, but you had so many young men who, were badly maimed, who were missing limbs, who were uh, who were suffering from, I guess, you in a modern sense, you'd say PTSD. Uh, you have all these things at the same time. So even if you made it through the conflict, you were fortunate enough to be a soldier who who made it through. Oftentimes, you came through with uh, grievous uh, personal wounds that lasted the rest of your life, like missing missing limbs. That you, know, you had a whole generation of of young men, you know. You know, prosthetic arms when that's I think something that's really interesting uh, about the, the the Civil War uh, is this is really the beginning of this uh, the creation of prosthetic limbs. In fact there was a, a Confederate soldier uh, who was actually the, the first one to have a, a, a limb that was taken off during the war. His name was James E. Hanger uh, who had a limb taken off by a cannonball and created the first prosthetic uh, that interestingly enough, he actually went on to create a business that thrived after, during and after the war that is, is still around today. In fact, they're still creating uh, prosthetic limbs for, for American soldiers uh, who've been injured on, on various battlefields. It's kind of amazing. And again, it's kind of goes to, you know, this was, this was Americans fighting Americans. I mean, the, the hangar was a, a Confederate soldier, but you know, the generations that came after him, you know, that they, they were Americans and, uh, and and ultimately, you know, created prosthetic limbs for, for, for Marines going into uh, fighting in the Pacific and, and fighting in modern conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. I think that's something that's something to remember with this is, you know, this this is something that, that touches all Americans at that time, uh, no matter where they came from. Uh, and this was such a deep emotional scar uh, for the country. I think 
we should turn to uh, this, this, this going off of the, the kind of casualties and the, the kind of bloodshed of the war, sort of the strategy uh, involved for the North and South, because, you know, there were, there were, there were really two sides. And we talked about the difference in the, the total numbers, of course, of, of the Union side. The Union was more highly industrialized. The South which was more agricultural, still had a slave society so they could actually, in some sense, put more men in uniform because uh, their, their industry was basically carried on by, by slaves back home. Uh, but you had two very different kind of outlooks and different paths to victory, where you had one, which is the Union side, wishing to reunite the country, and you had another for the Confederate side, the Southern side, wishing to be independent of that country. And so I think this is something that's that's important to talk about, especially you know with your background more in uh, in foreign relations and and, and international strategy. Uh, kind of talk us through maybe some of the different uh, the different sides in, in this in this campaign. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I the, the interesting before I go to that. I mean, the interesting thing about Hangar is like he was an 18 year old. Um, that 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 entire event like is phenomenal. Like he was he was 18 year old. He got his leg shot off by a cannonball he was his leg was hanging by the skin and he took it and he hid in a hole to hide from the yankees and then he was taken to a doctor in ohio where uh, he he you know got uh, better there and then he designed this peg leg which is you know, it's, it's the interesting thing and and he made this whole business where he, you know he made legs for both the north and the southern sides it's a fascinating fascinating idea about just how the reconciliation worked in a, in a way like you know these these people were like brothers fighting each other and it, it's such a massive tragedy but to go back to your question um so the north's original strategy um was policing missions like they they wanted to they 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 thought <laughs> that they're just going to walk in and and arrest all these you know rebellious generals and people and that would be the end of it and uh, and to some extent they were right um the north's overwhelming uh, superiority was in the navy so they kind of like guarded up the coastlines which meant the southern ports were constantly facing trouble and pressure not to have any kind of um import from any kind of external power um and then the north wanted to have one army coming through the coastlines of the east from Virginia and straight through Carolinas and the other one going uh, on the west side and just encircling and then meeting south around Tennessee. Uh, but that obviously failed. Um, they faced a massive number of you know opposition in, in the cities and towns. Sometimes they walked in and then they were butchered um, you know in, in, in a skirmish. Uh, so they, so that kind of failed. Around the same time, uh, there were technological advancements that were going on on both north and south. Um, we, we're going to talk more about the foreign policy part of it, but I, I think I think uh, I think it's interesting to note that not just the superiority of numbers, the north, because of its industrial power, had research and development designs which the south at that point of time lacked. For example, the south had muzzle-loading rifles, which is great; it's a good rifle at that point of time. But the North then had rifles where they could have seven or eight bullets or slugs um, in the in the hind of the uh, of in the in the hook of the gun. So even though they were not accurate in their in the targeting, but they had the psychological effect when they so say if the northern soldiers are perched on top of a hill and they were like the southern soldiers moving up the hill, 
the number, the rate of 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 shooting, uh, kind of like had a psychological effect on the South. So that was one. Gatling guns, even though they were again not very accurate in those days, had a massive psychological effect. This is the first time when mechanized rifles were used against masses of armies. Um, most of the guns, most of the shots didn't really hit the other person, but who would want to go in front of a of a, of a of an entire, you know, there, there were this demoralizing effect on troops which ran uh, for cover when, when they were like planning to charge a hill. So a lot of those things changed. Um, but overall, the Northern strategy, the military strategy was encircling uh, at that point of time, you wanted to talk about the Anaconda plan. I think that's a, that's an interesting thing to talk about at this point. Um, but that failed. Why do you think the Anaconda plan failed anyway? Like what, what was the, what was the basics of them? I, I do think, I mean, it, it didn't, I wouldn't say it, it necessarily failed. In fact, I would say that the, the kind of general principle of the war, which I think was a, a smart one, the Anaconda plan was originally drawn up by Winfield Scott, old fuss and feathers was a, a hero of, uh, the Mexican-American War had one of the greatest campaigns, uh, certainly in American military history, taking Mexico City, uh, but is unfortunately known for, for many Americans who study the war as the overweight general who couldn't get up on his horse. I think that's sadly very, uh, it's not really fair to Winfield Scott because he did come up with the original strategy of the Anaconda Plan, which essentially to uh, surround and blockade the South, prevent the South and choke off the South because look, the reality is that because of the, the unions uh, and the North's dominance in industry, the South was going to become more reliant on imports uh, to win its war. It needed foreign support. It needed foreign weapons. It needed foreign, uh, even ships uh, to, to, to compete uh, with the union and, and to fight for what they saw as their independence. I mean, you talked about the difference in the weapons, many of those those modern rifles were starting to be certainly be produced in Europe. That was very hard for for the Confederacy to acquire those because uh, the Union was was able to blockade uh, uh, southern ports. And you could say, to a certain extent, in the very early days of the war, the South kind of played into the Union's hands. I think very uh, unwisely. This was a big strategy by uh, President Jefferson Davis. This idea of King Cotton that uh, essentially restricting cotton exports to Europe uh, would get European powers to side with with the budding Confederacy. I mean, he really, he should have been doing the opposite. He should have been using cotton essentially to buy as much material as possible uh, rather than rather than keeping it from those European powers. It had a lot less effect, I think, than he, he initially wanted. In fact, I think it actually helped uh, Lincoln's plan to choke off the South even more, even though the Union at that point, certainly early in the war, didn't exactly have the ability to blockade the entirety of the South, which was a, a huge uh, challenge, uh, regardless of the disparity in the navies, which was which was quite significant. Um, so I wouldn't say that the the Anaconda Plan failed. Obviously, you know when you have a large term, you know kind of grand strategy, most of the time, uh, many of the details uh, don't exactly go as one sees it. Um, but the ultimate strategy of, of choking off the South and preventing, uh, imports and surrounding it and cutting it off, uh, from the world. And of course the battles that took place, not just in, in Northern Virginia and in the, the Northern part of the war, but in the West became, uh, essential, uh, to ultimately defeating the Confederacy. So I would say that ultimately that the that the union strategy did pay off but it, it wasn't an easy thing it wasn't like 
I think there's sometimes the mistake in thinking that the the road that the union took was an easy one, that it was simply a matter of just bringing all of that uh, industry and all those troops to bear. Because, you know, as we see in so many different wars, a lot depends on the, the ideas and the motives of the people involved. I mean, this is about convincing your population uh, to march into maybe what they see as somebody else's territory. You could say it's all American territory, but the Union had to win an offensive war to win this. The South had to fight a defensive war. They had to simply survive. And I think that goes to the, the challenges of each side and the, and the strategies from each side. Lincoln wasn't simply trying to defeat uh, Southern armies on the battlefield. He was trying to bring the Confederacy back into the Union. Uh, and that was that was an essential part of this this whole deal, which, again, leads to the kind of complications of war. It's not just about uh, numbers on a spreadsheet. Uh, it's about it's about hearts and minds. It's about um, it's about how people feel about the war, how about the psychology of war and, and knowing the right moment to choose one strategy over another. And I think that's what what Lincoln u- ultimately did during the course of the war, which ultimately uh, brought victory. But. Uh, I think it was, in some sense, a, a closer run thing than than people realize. And the numbers would simply suggest, which is uh, the Union was simply could not lose the war. I don't think that's the case. I think you're right. I, I, I kind of wanted to ask you this question as well. Um, there was a time from late 1861 to at least early 1862 where the Union Army was so divided on, on two sides um, it, it was led by General McClellan, who was, you know, a risk-averse kind of guy. He was, he, he didn't really want to push through. He, he still believed in the old school, you know, just mounting forces and going muzzle-to-muzzle kind of tactics. But also, given that the South was numerically inferior to the North, they had to rely on strategy, which, I mean, obviously these days, uh, a lot of people criticize Robert E. Lee being as too cavalier uh, and too, like, too aggressive in a strategy with, like, fewer people but it was made out of necessity i mean if you think of the distance between richmond and dc um from lee's perspective if the northern armies are moving through both sides and trying to encircle the south they are having less people to defend the capital and in those days um people still used to have the belief in the law of victory like if you're a victor in a in a fight which means you have legitimately won so you're right. I mean, it was it was a northern war of winning hearts and minds. But also, if you win the war, that means you win the war. Like, you know, you, 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 there is not going to be like a you're not going to have a problem where you're walking through the road and someone is just sniping you from the sides. You know, it, it, it's it's you won the war fair and square. And that's it. There was the sense of fair play in, in, in that sense. And Lee's tactics in those days was that, yes, we have fewer people, you know, fewer men at arms. We just essentially go and take DC, and that was a symbolic gesture on their part, which is one of the reasons why you know Lincoln had to move his troops back from the west and so like you know defending DC is so important because symbolically, if the capital falls, the war is over. You know, you you take Richmond or you take DC, you know, and and that's it. Um, so that was very interesting. I also want to ask you about um, the, this this idea of what kind of pushed Lincoln for the for the you know the emancipation uh, I you know the the bill of emancipation of of people around mid eighteen sixty two from what I remember like what 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 changed at that point of time that he decided that this is the perfect appropriate moment to go for it 
Yeah, he needed he needed battlefield victories. That's what he needed uh, ultimately. I, I think there was the issue that, especially early in the war, that immediate emancipation could make the states that were still technically uh, slave states that had stayed with the Union flip to the other side. I think he was very concerned, especially about uh, Kentucky. He was concerned about Tennessee. He was concerned maybe to a lesser extent about Delaware. And a lot of these these states that were quite wobbly in their devotion to the Union. I think it's an underestimated uh, part of the war. People oftentimes forget that a lot of these states might have gone to the other side. I mean, there were a lot of there was a lot of pressure, including, uh, you know, it makes me think about Tennessee. I mean, one of the reasons why he brought Andrew Johnson onto his ticket during his second term is because Andrew Johnson who's the governor of Tennessee, decided to stay with the union in some in, in some sense, very bravely uh, stayed at his post, essentially. And even though his state had a lot of uh, Southern and Confederate sympathy, uh, he decided to to keep. Uh, Tennessee and hold it uh, in the Union. You, and and, and for, for the Confederate side, there was actually, I would say, some mistakes that were made early in the war by uh, acting too offensively in Kentucky and turning Kentuckians uh, against uh, the Confederate efforts because they suddenly saw the Confederates as the aggressors uh, in the struggle. And you, know, you really see in some of Lincoln's early decisions, especially out West, where you had uh, General John C. Fremont, who was the kind of great hero and explorer of the West, uh, who led uh, the Army of the West at the time, declaring emancipation uh, in, in, uh, too soon in Missouri. And in fact, he, he declared emancipation. They basically had to retract it. He got pushed and knuckled under by Abraham Lincoln, saying that essentially he was getting out ahead of his skis as a general. These decisions were going to be ultimately made uh, by the commander-in-chief. And they, and they had, again, they had a very uh, political bent to it because Lincoln needed to show that the that the Union was was winning the war, that battlefield victories were going to fall. And early on in the war, while the first uh, really year of the war was sort of going the Union's way, there were a series of victories that were won by the the especially the Army of Northern Virginia uh, that put things in question. And so, you know, Lincoln really did have a tough political challenge as far as keeping those 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 divided border states in the union not pushing them to to make them see as this as if this is a war simply on behalf of ending slavery that this was really was a war first to preserve the union which is what ultimately americans went into this uh on the northern side mostly being about and i think that's that's very important i think that's that's i think that goes to lincoln's now th again this is something that lincoln has been criticized saying that well he wasn't really that concerned uh with ending slavery at all but I think it really more goes to his statesmanship. I mean, he could have taken the the immediate emancipationist route and found defeats both uh, both militarily and politically. Uh, and if he had been defeated, let's say, by his at the time Democrat opposition, uh, they might have sued for peace and slavery might have never been abolished or it may have been put off for a very, very long time, well into the 20th century. I mean, there was a real challenge, especially in the 1864 election. When George McClellan, his general, who he fired, uh, challenged him in, in that election. Um, and I think that if McClellan had taken over, uh, I think there's a very good chance that the war simply would have ended, that the Union would have uh, sued for Pete. There, there would have been some kind of negotiated settlement with a basically a southern nation uh, intact. And uh, I think that would have been I think that would have been a disaster for the, the future of the United States. But 
again, that, that goes to, to show that this was not a settled thing. This really was about uh, winning over people and, and making them stay the course uh, through this through this bloodbath of this war and making them understand that uh, we have to follow through essentially and, and re- retain the union as it was. And I think that Lincoln played this well, but it was a very tricky matter. And so, you know, he couldn't just say, well, media emancipation, because I think that would have ultimately destroyed the war effort. What do you just before we go to the, the, the foreign policy part, where obviously we're going to talk about Lincoln as well. Um, what do you think of this idea that here is this guy who is fundamentally a, a Republican, like a, a Republican in the in the small R sense, like he's, he's a genuinely committed uh, committed to the Republic. But also, on the other hand, he's just he doesn't really he didn't really care about human rights at that point of time. Um, there was this this idea that you know if you, if you're a deserter you're going to be shot you you know you don't have any heaviest corpus for the uh, for the people of the Confederate Army who who's who's you know um, uh, captured so is that is that was that just purely a, a matter of necessity like how did that affect his his standing in the, in the country and was that like was that an effect you know affecting his his popularity in the north as well. Yeah, I, I think in, in large part, and, and yes, many of those decisions were very unpopular. He had a lot of opposition in his own time, this this belief that, you know, he was stepping on, on the rights of citizens, that he was, you know, crushing the press, that, you know, he was arresting uh, Supreme Court justices, that he was doing uh, things that were outside the law. But at the same time, and I think this is an issue that maybe bedevils the modern West, where especially in a lot of modern wars, you know, we, we see ourselves fighting ultimately for, for human rights first. And sometimes these questions simply become deeply problematic in which you really have, I mean, this is, this is a war that's taking place literally within, within the United States It's literally happening. I mean, he can't, uh, you know, re- read the rights to every uh, Confederate soldier that a union soldier blows away on the battlefield. It's just, uh, there's some realities in, in fighting a war, especially on, on a war of the magnitude, of the civil war that has so many complications. These were states fighting other states. You had the kind of practical concerns. For instance, in Virginia, you had a very serious movement uh, to break off and rejoin the Union, ultimately creating uh, West Virginia. You know, was that technically uh, constitutional what they did? Can you break one state off of another? You know, these decisions are being made in the middle of wartime. And and I think some of those uh, constitutional questions, which I think Lincoln you know, tried to, to fit within the law strictly. I mean, he, he, obviously there's, of course, the suspension of habeas corpus that he gets criticized. And and Congress does have the ability to suspend habeas corpus. He simply declared it and waited for Congress to come back uh, into session. And But that, that comes down to these decisions that are made uh, at, at the very moment of, of when this war is taking place. And uh, not making those decisions could ultimately mean the destruction of the Union, that the country will be simply no more. Uh, and there is a little bit of, you know, this idea, even, you know, going back to, to, to John Locke, this, you know, this idea that if, if there's a necessity, you know, ultimately, in some cases, uh, you have to supersede the law. I think Lincoln was very careful uh, in the way he, he conducted himself during the war. And I think maybe some of the criticism has gone too far, but it's understandable that the Constitution was, you could say, stretched during that time, because you look at the circumstances. I mean, this was a country that was shattered into many, many pieces. It was a country where 
you know, the, the, the country was basically uh, divided in half and looked like it may not exist uh, outside the, the 1860s. That simply the constitutional government, there'd be no constitution at all. There'd be nothing. And so those were very difficult decisions uh, made at the time. And I, I do think that ultimately the result of the war, the country certainly changed. I think the, the, the constitution changed after the war, after the passage of, of a number of amendments. Um, but that ultimately the, the kind of basic framework of what America was, was retained. It, it, it was retained despite the fact that it went through an episode of civil war that would have, I think, destroyed most other nations. I think the heaviest corpus part is something which usually is discussed the most when it comes to foreign policy uh, with Great Britain, like Salisbury, who was, who was uh, you know, the leader of the you know, Conservative Party. He, he was fundamentally opposed to Lincoln because he thought Lincoln had, number one, bad taste in... in, <laughs> in, in, in yeah, it was, it was one of the most... You know, if you read like Salisbury's memoirs, it was just, it's absolutely weird. Like, he's just talking about this, this tall guy who's got really bad taste um, in, in stuff. Um, but also, the, the opposition, uh, in at least in the British elite conservative circles, was that this is the guy who uh, destroyed heaviest corpus in this country and 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 to them you're right we discussed that in the in the previous episode like this was how every republic destroys itself so it was like oh look there's this caesar kind of figure who's you know who's coming to power and destroying all human rights of 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 the people and that's just how the, that's the fate of a republic uh, and and this this there's this interesting part where Salisbury is talking about how robert e lee is just a classic anglo gentleman um who who follows the rule of law whereas lincoln doesn't it's it's fascinating um we foreign policy um that's the that's the key question and one of the key questions of this episode um where where was american foreign policy at that point of time where was the union foreign policy standing you know it's interesting I, a large part of it was simply keeping the old world out of the new world and that was a huge aspect of I think everybody thinks about of course the war itself and the efforts to restore the union uh, but there was real danger uh, that not only would the the country crack up but that other forces would would get themselves involved in that crack up would start to peel off pieces and I there were very serious discussions uh, in Europe uh, to essentially start making inroads into the Americas of the United States, for many in Europe, seemed to be on the brink of a, a complete and total implosion. And it, it was very much the Lincoln administration's policy, especially Secretary of State Seward, uh, to essentially threaten any European power that if they got involved in any way uh, in the war in, in the Americas, that there would be significant repercussions. In fact, Seward actually, which seems a little ridiculous, he basically said that he would declare war on any country that got involved on the Confederate side or recognized uh, Confederate independence, which is quite a bold thing for uh, an America of the 1860s to declare, which was not the superpower of the 20th and 21st century. Um, but I think some of the, the, um, the American record, maybe even before the war, uh, gave European power some pause as far as getting involved in the conflict that uh, as you know, as we've discussed in, in previous efforts, uh, episodes, Americans were often very serious in, in their policies. It was a country that had taken its lumps from other powers and showed itself in the course of time to be able to stand back on it, up on its feet and punch back. And so I think there was 
a lot of movement from foreign powers to potentially get involved, but wary movement. And that, of course, frustrated many Southern Confederate leaders who were desperate uh, to bring in other powers to help their cause. It was just, this was a, a, a long-term strategy from Jefferson Davis's administration to try to get foreign involvement uh, and recognition, including uh, funny things like trying to get the, the, the Pope in Rome to recognize uh, the Confederacy as an independent sovereign nation. This was a huge deal uh, to the Confederate government, seeing it to be seen as something that's legitimate, that this is a nation. This is simply something that's happened that, that will be. Uh, and that was what the, that's what Union did. The, the Lincoln administration had to contend with. And uh, that kind of went unevenly sometimes because uh, during the war, European nations certainly did uh, involve themselves. Uh, uh, and maybe you can talk a little bit a little bit about that. Yeah, I agree. I think I think the the interesting part was it, there was this always this puzzle that Britain obviously, I mean if you go through the records like it 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 heavily deliberated about intervening in the Americas. Like that that was a classic British strategy of divide and rule. Like you see a fisher, you kind of take the side of the weaker power. Um, Britain did that throughout its history in Europe, for example. Like it supported the Netherlands against Spain when Spain was a great power threat. Um, supported the French against the Germans, Germans against French, um, Austrians against Napoleon, and then France against both Kaiser and Hitler. Um, so that that's so that's an understandable strategy that you you whenever you see a war, you take the side of the weaker power and kind of like give more. I mean, even now the British strategy is like essentially just more gung ho than America in Ukraine. So uh, it's 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 instinctive. Having said that, it didn't at the end of the day take a side of the Confederates. And that that's the most interesting historical question in this context is even though Britain was more in touch with the South culturally, the South was mostly Anglican, the North was more Puritan and European, the Northern people at that point of time had huge uh, migration from the Protestant Europe. Uh, so they had Germanic surnames and Dutch and, you know, they, and there was this huge migration from mainland continental Europe, whereas the South was fundamentally Anglo. Um, the South was obviously more uh, trade related, like tied up with trade when it comes to Great Britain. Like the, the culture, obviously, in the South was more pro-Anglo compared to the culture in the North, which still had that old revolutionary, you know, resistance to, to English, you know, influence um, in those days. So there was this valid question about you, whether the UK would have intervened on behalf of the South, but ultimately it did. And I, again, I mean, there are no plain historical answers to puzzles like these, but I could think of three reasons why Britain didn't pull the trigger. One, the cotton thing was a miscalculation of the South, because at that point of time, Britain already had India. So the South essentially miscalculated the amount, the importance of cotton in, in British trade, whereas at that point of time, in, you know, Britain was getting all the cotton, you know, raw cotton that you can get from India and manufacturing in, in British mills in Birmingham and Manchester and then selling it back to India. So they were already making money out of it. So, you know, that, so the, the, the idea that they have to, like, import higher quality cotton with extra money coming from you know uh, a more you know upmarket society in the south compared to like a more cheap labor uh, that they have in india was wrong second of all uh britain already had the indian mutiny in 1857 three years before the civil war 
it wasn't sure of consolidating it. It didn't really have the manpower to have consolidated the, the massive country that they've suddenly just acquired from the East India Company um, to have all the people, you know, in positions of power and kind of like do double dealings with all the princely states, which are nominally independent, but still under British, you know, you know, protection, having the threat of Russia uh, in, in Afghanistan, the great game uh, in Crimea, so I think I think at that point of time, even though the intention was there, uh, the threat of Britain being too overstretched, and because it's an imperial system, like we we talk about America being an empire, but if America was really a smart empire, it wouldn't be overstretched because genuinely smart empires they understand where they have to go and where they don't. Like where they are not going is a very important consideration for an imperial system, because at, at in an empire you have a very narrow set of elite who kind of like identify with their interests, with the interest in, of the nation. So if they think like, oh, if we should go there and then we're going to lose everything, then they are not going to go. They don't have this moral, you know, revolutionary idea that we have to promote human rights or anything of that sort. And finally, uh, I think I think Britain at that point of time, the Royal Navy was interested in abolition of slavery this was in the 1860s and uh, they just couldn't side with the south but especially like after 1862 when lincoln had the, the the emancipation decree out i think the question was just moot at that point of time the south was just obsolete what about the french like you know, that's that's you you talk about the french mexican war that was a huge threat for the north yeah, it's it's that's I I that I think those are I think that's a very good summation of the British policy and um, I, I think it is interesting because of course there were some I would say fairly minor efforts to help arm the Confederacy on behalf of the British. Of course, there was this uh, famous story of the CSS Alabama, which was a ship that was built in British ports that was used by the Confederacy. Something that actually was used after the war by the Grant administration to have indemnities pay to the United States. It's actually sort of an, an embarrassing episode, the idea that they would arm a slave power, essentially. But the British were, as you said, I think much more cautious about engaging themselves, even a, a situation that looked like it might work out in their favor. I think there was a lot of uncertainty and simply doubting that the United States government would no longer exist within a few years or that the country would be cracked up was not the best bet and was not a sure bet. The French had ultimately a different conclusion from this. They thought that this was their moment to essentially seize uh, parts of the new world and, and launched what ultimately ended up being an ill-fated expedition to take over Mexico. Now, Mexico had been a country that was uh, had owed money to not just France, but many other nations. It was sort of a basket case kind of country. A lot of the uh, the kind of conservative forces in, in Mexico were more or less wanting the French to step in uh, and take over the country. But unfortunately, the efforts for the for the French didn't exactly work out great. They they ultimately were able to win on many battlefields, but it, the, the war kind of went slowly. Um, it's funny. There's there's a, a holiday now and that's celebrated in America, Cinco de Mayo which people see as, you know, this, this really, this kind of Mexican holiday. It's actually a celebration of the Battle of Puebla. Uh, but the, the holiday itself actually has more importance to the United States in a certain sense because it slowed down the French efforts in the Mexican War. It slowed down their ability to take over the country. And this was a, this was a serious problem that 
uh, both North and South uh, in America were thinking uh, very much about that, that, that France was creating an independent power on the southern border of the Confederacy. In fact, during a negotiation uh, that happened very late in the war uh, between uh, Union leaders and Confederate leaders, uh, Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy, suggested that the, the North and South rejoined forces to, for, for a brief moment uh, to go down and fight the French on the southern border. Of course, this, this, this proposal was, was turned down. But there was a very serious threat that something larger was brewing uh, down south. That the French were essentially trying to recreate uh, another new France in the new world uh, that was very serious. That didn't ultimately happen. Now, France won this war, but uh, ultimately Maximilian was overthrown and executed by, by his own people. Uh, and again, this became kind of an embarrassment, ultimately, I think, for French foreign policy that they they over they they, they overstepped their skis uh, in, in their their desire to carve out a, a new colonies uh, in the new world. But uh, this was a very big consideration uh, for American policymakers, for the Lincoln administration, this this fear uh, that existed that if the nation truly cracked apart, that every foreign power in the world would want to be involved. I mean, there, there would be, some would be siding with the Confederacy, some would be siding with the Union, and that really North America would become a, a war zone like many other places in the world. That is simply, it would be used as a proxy war uh, between other nations uh, that would like to get involved. And this is something that Americans have been very fortunate uh, through our history uh, to be free of, because it was a, a unified nation that went from uh, sea to shining sea, that uh, there was a lot of unity uh, that was rebuilt after the war that other countries couldn't become uh, involved to to the, the decimation of the Union and, and, and to spark wars uh, between Americans. And I, I think that that is a as important thing to know. This is you know why I think many see, you know, America's future as a united country is so important, because once that once that does break down and of course, these two sides would be hostile to one another. You, you have a, a whole world that suddenly gets involved. Um, and that was something that was of, of deep concern and that ultimately uh, went in, in America's favor with the rejoining of the Union uh, at the end of the Civil War. I think you're right. I mean, the one of the obviously, it's a purely tactical reason, but some of the Navy that Lincoln wanted to sent towards the south were had to be rechanneled uh to the size to the to the shore, eastern shore and the, and the, and the southern seas next to florida because um they had to be divided because you know of the french invasion of mexico um speaking of navy the biggest technological issue uh of the time ironclads first time used in the american civil war bizarrely looking massive hulks of ships which are steam carmine uh used uh, but also there wasn't much. <laughs> the, the interesting thing about the Civil War is like they they had tactics which were really old, um, and, but 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 their technology had changed to the point where they are they had to use like new tactics. So um, the Southern ironclad looked like 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 an inverted tent, uh, and the Northern ironclad <laughs> looked like a sub. Yeah, the Northern ironclad looked like a submarine with um, with uh, a, a moving turret. And they just essentially circled themselves for like the whole day, and that fired, and the cannon just like went through the through the iron, the the the, the armor, and then fell in the sea. It was it was an absolutely comical you know warfare, but but it changed it it turned sea warfare revolutionary. It kind of like gave the idea to the French and the Brits in a way to 
to have their wooden ships having iron armor, and that in turn started to be developed as battleships and dreadnoughts in the future. What do you think? Yeah, it's really amazing the technological changes that happen, even just within the war and the organizational changes that happen. I mean, the, the first the first battles between the, the, the Union and the Confederacy were basically like two mobs uh, bumping up against each other. I mean, the, the first battle of Bull Run or Manassas was exactly just like that. It was two mobs bumping into each other, a lot of confusion. Uh, but you see through the war the, the increase in organization. You see the change in technology. As you said, new rifles are, are brought to bear at the very end of the war. They bring in items like Gatling guns, which is, I mean, it's basically a precursor of a machine gun. You have more accurate uh, cannons. You have more accurate rifles. And so this kind of old style, which had been the dominant form of warfare in the West for a long time, which was sort of the power of the West of, of massing uh, large infant uh, uh, militaries, essentially, uh, uh, basically massing soldiers and firing uh, in, in rank. Uh, and decimating their opponent because most weapons in the earlier days were so inaccurate that that, that is essentially how you needed to operate if you're actually going to hit your enemy. Uh, by the end of the war, it became very clear that if you continue to use those tactics, you're going to have entire lines of your infantry be completely obliterated. And in many cases, cavalry was had become useless too because you know you would, of course, be obliterated by the, the fast... Uh, uh, shooting uh, rifles. And so you actually saw a lot of uh, changes at the end of the war. You kind of saw some of the trench warfare uh, that that became commonplace in the, in the later stages of World War I. You know, in, the, in front of St. Petersburg, you essentially had a long-term trench warfare uh, that lasted for a long time. You had sieges. And so many started to realize that these kind of battles of offense and, uh, and attrition, which just were not going to work, that, that you were simply the devastating power of this new weaponry uh, was all consuming. And certainly you see that with the, the transition in ships that was really in its infancy during the civil war with the, the, the Merrimack and the, and the monitor and the, the ironclad ships that you know, there was a new form of warfare uh, budding. This is a, the age of steamships and the age of an age of iron and steel. Uh, these were dramatically different weapons uh, from from a generation earlier. I mean, most weapon technology through history happens very slowly. But when you see the the the, the industrial revolution, the rise of industrial capitalist societies, you have very rapid growth in technologies. And sometimes the tactics of those wars, those previous wars, simply don't fit into the new paradigm. And so you had a lot of uh, good officers reading books like uh, there was one particular French. Uh, uh, a strategist named Jomini who was very widely studied, but his his methods of warfare were meant for a Napoleonic era that was simply was simply gone. And it was in some cases some commanders like Ulysses S. Grant who you know sort of threw the book out and uh, through the war, who learned on the fly about the new types of warfare uh, and became effective commanders during the war. And I think a lot of those lessons that were learned in the Civil War, unfortunately forgotten in the years after, and I think a lot of them had to be relearned uh, during the First World War, where you see, again, the devastating effects of technology and the inability of, of armies to to overcome them in the old-style tactics that worked in previous, previous centuries. Yeah. Um, we Before we end about, and talk about the books, I want to touch on the, 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 the core of this 
double episode. How does the Civil War still shape the narrative? Like, what what happened once Civil War was ended? What kind of reconciliation happened? What what was the permanent architecture of politics that was designed that, in your opinion, was a good thing, wasn't a good thing? Like, led some of the questions, which kind of like you know, uh, still continues to this day. Uh, some of the questions which were unanswered in a way about state rights and and fundamental rights about about humans or even the identity of Americans as a whole. So what what do you what I mean what how what how do you think the Civil War shapes uh, the American politics now? Yeah, I certainly. I mean, there were there were massive changes that took place. You know, right after the war, you had you could say the passage of the the Fourteenth Amendment, which made our Constitution a federal constitution. I mean, you think about. The First Amendment rights, you think about, well, that's 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 a right that must be guaranteed by the government. But in the days before the Civil War, uh, that was uh, the First Amendment, uh, the right to free speech and assembly. That was only a prohibition on the federal government. So you had state governments that could essentially violate those rights. That was changed after the 14th Amendment. But it also made many issues suddenly that were at one time limited to states and localities. Suddenly issues started to become more federalized after the war. There's no question uh, that that the United States, following the war, uh, became a more you could say settled nation. That this idea of some element of the kind of states' rights doc, uh, doctrine that existed before was essentially uh, destroyed during the war, and you could say that in, in both good ways and bad ways. It it created kind of the the modern American nation. Uh, people stopped thinking of America as a series of separate states and more as the United States is instead of the United States are. And I think that was a profound effect of the war. Um, and I think that still, you know, shapes American politics. And I think, and I think, and unfortunately in modern days, you know, we've gone out kind of the other side of that question, but that we no longer even acknowledge the, the importance of things, uh, aspects of our government, like federalism, that the idea of that the state should have their own separate powers is actually a way in many cases, to preserve liberty, to, to prevent the kind of tyrannies that uh, the founders of many generations were, were concerned about. So I don't blame that long-term trend necessarily on Lincoln or, the, or any of, a, of those who were involved in the Civil War, but that that has been the trend of the American nation through the 20th century and the 21st century, those decisions that were made later. Um, as far as reconciliation goes, I think that it's important to communicate you know, how really remarkable it is that America was able to recreate anything resembling a functional country following what had happened, that the bloodbath that had taken place, the bad feelings that, that were involved, the, the sheer amount of death. Um, this, is, this is what most Americans grappled with after the war. It was less about a lot of times these, these issues about slavery and the Constitution. It was simply about dealing with the fact that you had lost family, that you, you, your town had been devastated, that uh, your your wealth was gone. I mean, these were things that were uh, very prominent in the minds of Americans. And how do you bring in these these states that had seceded from the Union? How did they, you make them uh, rejoin the Union on, on, on an, an equal basis? I mean, that was something that bedeviled uh, American policy and politics uh, for a generation afterward. And ultimately, how do you get those who had been defeated to feel once again like they're Americans, because that was the ultimate cause of the war. I mean, if that if if you know were to take Lincoln and those who supported him seriously, the, the cause of the war was not to crush the South and make them go away. The cause of the war was to bring them in again and, and say, we're all Americans. 
and that was the ultimate that's that's what they wanted that legacy to be i think there's sometimes this notion now you know why didn't the north act even more aggressively to the south why didn't they simply uh take all the southern leaders and hang them and shoot them um i think this idea of uh malice toward none charity for all which of course is in uh, Lincoln's second inaugural was was so important. I mean, there there has to be a way for us to move forward as a country that has been now stained with blood, and to recreate this 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 free nation under a constitution. You know, one nation once again, um, and that was a huge challenge that was really done through generations, where you had to 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 get beyond the bad feelings uh, and the bad blood that existed. And I think those efforts. Were, were largely successful. They were uneven during the days after the war. As, as I said, there was a lot of bad feelings. I think I think many would certainly acknowledge that uh, civil rights in America was not fully completed during that time. There were, there were injustices that took during, place during uh, the Reconstruction era. Uh, but this was not something that one could simply snap their fingers and hope to come true. I mean, it was just, it just wasn't. Um, but I, I think we're very fortunate that those efforts, I think in many cases, uh, succeeded because you know if you talk about the, the great American of the 20th century, the American century, you know that wouldn't have happened without, I, I think, a lot of wise leadership in bringing the country back together, bringing back uh, this idea of reconciliation between North and the South. That the statue that we talked about in previous episodes that that is that existed at Arlington, you know, being as a, as a product of. Uh, William McKinley, a, a, a man who fought for the Union, but ultimately found a way to bring a, a memorial for those he fought against at Arlington National Cemetery, the most hallowed ground in this country. Uh, you know, that's how you rebuild a nation. That's how you rebuild uh, what went on before uh, with this idea of forgiveness and moving on. I think that's a very it's a very positive American thing. It's something I think America should ultimately uh, be very proud of. I absolutely agree. I mean, this is something that bothers me whenever I read like a more cavalier attitude in, in social media about like how we are going through a, a second civil war. I mean, of, of course, like leaving aside the 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 bloodbath, the, the tragedy of the entire conflict, there are fundamental issues that one needs to grapple with when they advocate a kind of like a, a, a conflict down the road situation. Like, first of all, Divided America would be prone to so much more external influence that it's 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 going to be unthinkable to have like I mean I mean think of it this way if America is divided into two or three you know sizes of all the countries from not just you know from Russia but the European Union like they're they're the old world would again look in a way that they haven't in in these parts of the world America is a hegemon uh, in the Western Hemisphere and some of those instincts are still dormant there in Europe. Um, and second of all, it 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 questions the the prudence of the elder statesmen of those days. You you mentioned Lincoln's second inaugural. I mean, that's a, it's probably like the epitome of the compromise um, that people tend to forget these days. I think that's a that's a great way to to finish off the episode. What books would you uh, would you recommend um, yeah. for this for this show? Yeah, absolutely. One more point I'd like to make. It's just because it, I think it is important. Please. Um, yeah. I think it was Dwight Eisenhower who admired both Grant and Robert E. Lee. He admired and certainly was no Confederate sympathizer, admired both these men for, for their character, for their traits, for their qualities. I think this was a 
this was this was how Americans came back together. They they acknowledged that it was good that we have a united United States that that you know we would hope that the you know that the Union side was ultimately just, but we can still say that those who fought against the Union often did so with with courage and honor, and that was in a very important aspect to the healing and reconciliation that took place after the war that ultimately produced again in the future great victories you know dwight eisenhower the, the great hero uh, the great general of world war ii those wouldn't have happened without the decisions that had come before so i think that is very important as far as books go i think there especially when we're talking about uh the, the kind of grand strategy of the war there's actually an excellent book called uh, the Grand Design Strategy in the U.S. Civil War by Donald Stoker, which really gets into the nitty gritty of the kind of strategies that are used by both the North and the South to ultimately win the war, getting the, both the political and the military strategies. Because I think that's I think it's an underrated aspect of the Civil War, uh, of the kind of thinking that was going on at a high level of how to ultimately win in these these very you know, harrowing circumstances. And so that's one that I would certainly suggest. How about yourself? Is there anything that you, that comes to mind? I have this book called, which I mentioned to you before, it's called uh, Chancellor Veil, the, sorry, I'm just trying to put it in front of the camera. Uh, Lee's Greatest Battle by Edward J. Stackpole is obviously the great son of Virginia, as I live in Virginia now. So I kind of like associate with that one. So I'm sorry, I'm just messing with you. Um, but also, <laughs> but uh, but this is, uh, the, the, the good thing about this book is it actually talks about how with one third men, um, Lee actually kind of defeated the, the Union Army in Chancellorville. It was probably the peak point of Confederacy uh, when it comes to military might, but also the absolutely ridiculous, you know, mistakes that they made when like, you know, there were like people who just went ahead of their own lines. And then when they were coming back, they were got, they got shot by their own people. You know, it's, it's, it's a fascinating story. I think it's probably one of the greatest battles that happened on the soil uh, of this country. I would heavily recommend everyone to read that. Absolutely. Well, uh, thank you so much. I think this was a, a good two episodes and, uh, you know, may we hope there'll never be another American Civil War. That's for sure. Thank you so Amen. much, Sumatra. Thank you very much.